This is Macro Horizons, episode 174, Half Point Habituation, presented by BMO Capital Markets. I'm your host, Ian Lingen, here with Ben Jeffrey to bring you our thoughts from the trading desk for the upcoming week of June 6th. And with the Queen's celebration in full swing, we just learned that we have yet another thing in common with Kim Kardashian no entrance to the Platinum Jubilee official party. It's called a royal snub. Not to worry, we'll be re-watching Hamilton. The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of BMO Capital Markets, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. Each week, we offer an updated view on the U.S. rates market and a bad joke or two. But more importantly, the show is centered on responding directly to questions submitted by listeners and clients. We also end each show with our musings on the week ahead. Please feel free to reach out on Bloomberg or email me at ian.lyngen at bmo.com with questions for future episodes. We value your input and hope to keep the show as interactive as possible. So that being said, let's get started. In the week just past, the Treasury market put in a remarkably choppy performance after having ended the final full week of May on a decidedly bullish tone, we saw rates back up with 3% 10 years once again coming on the radar. Now, taking a step back, the price action can be best characterized as an extended period of consolidation. We make this observation primarily because the bulk of the price action has been remarkably in range, and it's been associated with the extreme momentum measures working their way out of overbought territory in the treasury market. Now, with these extremes alleviated to some extent, investors will be left to contemplate how the Fed will shift monetary policy over the course of the summer months. We're now into the Fed's radio silence period, and expectations for the June 15th FOMC meeting are for another 50 basis point rate hike, this to be followed by 50 basis points in July, and then at the September 21st meeting, another 50 basis points has increasingly become the consensus outlook. Now, recall that in the week just past, the Bank of Canada increased rates 50 basis points, but it was accompanied by language suggesting that a 75 basis point rate hike might be on the table soon. We don't anticipate a scenario in which the Fed will need to move 75 basis points. However, additional 50 basis point moves later in the year should be a consideration albeit not the base case scenario once we get past the September meeting. We've long lamented that during this cycle, it's notable how political inflation has become. We've heard that both from the White House as well as a variety of members of Congress. In addition, increasingly hearing issues from the politicians on the state and local level. So what this suggests is it's going to be an issue that remains relevant through at least the midterm elections, which implies that every meeting through November will see a rate hike of some magnitude. The fact certainly isn't lost on us, however, that a lot of the inflation that is hitting the consumer the hardest has to do with supply shocks and not on the demand side. Sure, 
undermining demand sufficiently will eventually curtail inflation, but it increases the risk that the Fed overshoots the mark and we ultimately find ourselves in a slower growth environment than monetary policymakers would ideally have liked to have engineered. So last week, we got a rally, 10-year yields down to 270, but this week was short, A, but B was bearish. We got 10-year yields back within striking distance of 3% and a jobs report that was meh. Yeah, I think that's a fair characterization. It was a remarkably consensus non-farm payrolls report. We saw a slightly higher than expected headline print, but the private NFP numbers were pretty much in line with expectations. The one aspect of the report that I will note stood out was the fact that average hourly earnings undershot expectations, increasing three-tenths of a percent month over month in May, effectively matching what we saw in April. And that left the year-over-year figures to decline to 5.2% from 5.5%. Now, this is obviously consistent with the peak inflation narrative, but more importantly, it is a reminder that in real terms, wages continue to decline, and that will potentially serve to undermine consumers' purchasing power as the summer months unfold. Nonetheless, the post-payrolls knee-jerk response was toward higher rates. This is, at least in part, a function of the fact that we have 33 billion 10-year notes auctioned on Wednesday and 29 billion in 30s auctioned on Thursday. And along with an early setup for the June reopening auctions of 10s and 30s, it's also worth acknowledging that along with the increase in outright yields, we did see a slight steepening of the curve, which reinforces that auction concession idea, and I would argue is also a function of the lower than expected monthly gain in average hourly earnings, and at least one data point that suggests the peak of wage growth and thus inflation is behind us for this cycle. From a monetary policy perspective, this means that the Fed will continue with at least two more 50-bip hikes, but in the event that wages start to moderate and the risk of a wage inflation spiral lessens, they might not need to be as extremely hawkish as would otherwise have been the case. Now this brings us to the obvious question, how do they address the September meeting? Brainerd left open the possibility of another 50 basis point rate hike, making an aggregate of four consecutive 50 basis point rate hikes and a total of 225 basis points in rate normalization. Without question, that would put monetary policy into the zone of neutral, if not through, but the broader issue isn't one of defining where neutral is during this particular cycle, but rather the extent to which the real economy can handle higher borrowing costs and continue to see a reasonable performance in risk assets. And on the performance of risk assets, it's been very relevant to see the past two weeks price action shows that the moves in the S&P 500 has tracked very closely to the price action we've seen in 10-year real rates. Higher inflation-adjusted borrowing costs comes at the expense of equity valuations. Meanwhile, drops in real yields have been viewed as a positive through the lens of stock valuations. Recall back in early May, we saw 10-year real rates get as high as positive 36 basis points, 
We then saw a bid for tips bring that measure back down to the mid-teens, which is still in positive territory, but not so high as to trigger that feedback loop with stocks. And now that we've settled into this range, right around 25 basis points, it seems that equities have been able to find their footing, or at the very least, not continue to drop sharply. The direction of the yield curve in here is a pretty big unknown when we think about how the Fed is transitioning to running off their balance sheet this month. The first date of relevance will be the maturities on the 15th of June. Now recall, the Fed hasn't been buying securities outright in the treasury market for some time. So what this means in practical terms is that there will be smaller add-ons at the upcoming auctions. We've made the point before, but it warrants reiterating. The bigger question isn't the smaller auction add-ons, but rather how Yellen and the Treasury Department choose to make up any funding shortfall. One of the defining characteristics of this year so far has been higher than expected tax receipts and the federal level, which means that borrowing needs will be less dramatic as we contemplate the balance of 2022. So this implies that there is plenty of borrowing capacity in the bill market to absorb any funding shortfall that results from the Fed's marginally smaller participation. And let us not forget, the Fed is going to let a meaningful amount of bills mature from SOMA over the course of the next 8 to 12 months. And from what the Treasury Department has told us, they would prefer that bills comprise somewhere between 15 to 20 percent of total debt outstanding. And that figure currently stands at roughly 12, 13 percent, which, to your point, Ian, leaves room for the bill market to grow and should afford Yellen patience in needing to once again start to increase coupon auction sizes. Also, looking at valuations in the very front end of the curve, there's clearly very significant demand for the shorter stated treasuries with bills and even short coupons trading well through OIS and in a more traditional environment would be considered very, very rich. But we've seen that dynamic persist so durably given that we're still in a net negative bill issuance environment that it certainly makes sense the Treasury Department will be very comfortable increasing bill auction sizes, which should help rationalize demand and presumably pull some of the $2 trillion that remains in the RRP program out of that system and into the quote-unquote longer parts of the market, by which I mean just not overnight. And I think that your observation about RRP really does go a distance to answer the question, who's going to pick up the bills? Well, it's not going to be Powell at least not until the recession happens and they need to start buying bonds again. Give it time. But in all seriousness, we also have been seeing an increasing number of headlines surrounding hiring freezes at large corporations, some news around right-sizing workforces and coming layoffs. And this is something that is obviously more closely associated with late cycle dynamics only two years after we exited the last recession. But somewhat counterintuitively, I'm not so sure that even a modest increase in the unemployment rate would be enough to get the Fed to pause maybe slow their hiking pace to 25 basis points every meeting or 25 basis points a quarter. But in some ways, a higher unemployment rate that's closer to some version of sustainable would be in keeping with the labor market side of the Fed's dual mandate, but also help take some of the upward pressure off wages and ultimately inflation. 
within our pre-NFP survey this month, we saw that the general consensus in terms of timing to see core CPI drop below 3% on a year-over-year basis is the third quarter of 2023, a timeline that certainly resonates with the lagged impact of monetary policy and when it is that we would expect this year's rate hikes to more observably start impacting the real economy. That isn't to suggest that the market isn't going to attempt to trade that dynamic ahead of the fact And the fact of the matter is, I'll argue that that's precisely what we saw over the course of the last several weeks. Now, the reversal seems to be implying that there's some buy-in with the Fed's narrative that the real economy can withstand higher rates. And for all intents and purposes, if risk assets can withstand higher rates and financial conditions remain as tight as they have been, that is something of a Goldilocks scenario for the Fed and is consistent with, if not actually proof of concept, of a soft landing. But something else that took place over this past week that gave us a bit more apprehension around the prospects for a soft landing, not that we needed anything more in that front, was the renewed rally in oil and a WTI contract that closed back in on $120 a barrel. Now, a lot of the weakness we've seen in crude over the past month or so has been a function of the fact that a lot of China has still been locked down. And as demand for oil from China starts to pick up again, it's certainly not unreasonable to expect that we're going to see continued upward pressure on oil prices with everything that implies for input costs, gas prices, and the overall tax on consumption argument. Ian, as you and I have discussed several times, the Fed can't do anything directly to address the price of oil, but what they can do is temper demand sufficiently to keep core inflation low, even if energy prices are going to remain high. In a very interesting client conversation this week, we heard the lament that at this point, the Fed is just fighting gas prices, and that's not a fight that Powell is likely going to be able to win. That's a fair point, Ben. And I'd also note that the administration has been getting involved with the ongoing release of oil from the Strategic Petroleum Reserves, and OPEC Plus has committed to increasing production, although most analysts suggest that there might be an enforceability issue in that regard. And there's another late cycle dynamic that's attracting an increasing amount of attention, both from the market, but also from the Fed. That is what is becoming increasingly clear in the housing market and what is starting to look like the turn in the real estate cycle. Now, this, of course, has to do with the fact that mortgage rates are back at levels we haven't seen since 2009, and it's also one of the implied objectives that the Fed set out to accomplish when they began hiking rates so aggressively. Both from a wealth effect perspective, but also just the composition of the inflation data, taking the edge off of housing would be an acceptable or even encouraging outcome from the perspective of the FOMC. We heard from Vice Chair Brainerd this week that while housing is cooling, she doesn't expect a dramatic move lower, but rather a slow recalibration of prices and overall activity to higher borrowing costs in one of the most interest rate sensitive subsets of the economy. And that brings us to the classic wealth effect argument. Is the Fed going to be successful in taking the upside edge out of the home prices, which would contribute to a lower inflation profile and at the same time reduce the overall wealth effect, leading consumers to be a bit more cautious with their outlays? That's one of the primary risks that the Fed now faces in its effort to engineer that all-too-elusive soft landing. Oh, sorry, your flight's been canceled, but we can rebook you in four to six days. That's fine. I'll be here, waiting. 
Still waiting. No, no. Yeah, no, I, I'm just waiting. In the week ahead, the Treasury market will be tasked with taking down three auctions. First will be the $44 billion three-year note on Tuesday, followed by TINs at $33 billion on Wednesday and capped with $19 billion long bonds on Thursday. The primary economic data event of the week will be CPI. Headline CPI is seen increasing seven-tenths of a percent month over month, and the core figures are seen up four-tenths of a percent. Now, these numbers are consistent with this notion that there will continue to be a divergence between headline and core consumer prices, particularly as the summer months play out. Now, this starts to become increasingly problematic as we get further into driving season and higher gasoline prices undermine spendable dollars for other non-necessities on the household level. This isn't a new notion, i.e. inflation functioning as a tax on consumption, but up until this point in the cycle, headline inflation has been the only inflation that matters. We did hear from Brainerd that the inflation numbers that really matter are core inflation, and that offers some context for what might be a transition after we get through the summer months to a Fed that is a bit more cautious and less hurried in their endeavor to normalize monetary policy. Although, frankly, once we get past September, Fed funds will be close enough to the zone of neutral for government bond work, as it were. In the context of the overall direction of the market, we are on board with a continued and or extended period of consolidation with 10-year yields trending below 3%, and our focus will increasingly be on the shape of the yield curve as the summer unfolds. The front end remains clearly anchored to monetary policy expectations, and that implies that twos, threes, and fives have an effective floor in terms of yields for the moment. Throughout the curve, however, tens and thirties, once we get through the needed concession for the reopenings, we anticipate that the path of least resistance will ultimately be toward lower rates. Now, part of this has to do with where we are in the cycle. Part of it has to do with the fact that there have been many sideline market participants who've been waiting for a dip to buy. We did get tens back up to 320, but that's a level that is increasingly appearing as though it's going to mark the upper bound for yields in the 10-year sector for the time being. What will be pivotal in defining the extent to which the long end of the curve can outperform will ultimately come down to risk assets. Now, as May ended and June began, there appeared to be a, a collective sense of stabilization in equity markets. Our take is that this period of relative calm has a limited shelf life. And once we get greater clarity on the inflation and growth front, we will see an attempt to revisit valuations and equities, which will have obvious implications for realized volatility, and that translates through to financial conditions. And ultimately, the feedback with higher real yields will provide a tangible headwind to risk assets. We've reached the point in this week's episode where we'd like to offer our sincere thanks and condolences to anyone who has managed to make it this far. 
And as we contemplate a summer road trip in the context of the national average gasoline price surpassing $4.75 a gallon, all we can say is yabba dabba do. Thanks for listening to Macro Horizons. Please visit us at bmocm.com backslash macrohorizons. As we aspire to keep our strategy effort as interactive as possible, we'd love to hear what you thought of today's episode. So please email me directly with any feedback at ian.lingen at bmo.com. You can listen to this show and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast provider. This show and resources are supported by our team here at BMO, including the FIC Macro Strategy Group and BMO's marketing team. This show has been produced and edited by Puddle Creative. This podcast has been prepared with the assistance of employees of Bank of Montreal, BMO Nesbitt Burns Incorporated, and BMO Capital Markets Corporation. Together, BMO, who are involved in fixed income and foreign exchange sales and marketing efforts. Accordingly, it should be considered to be a product of the fixed income and foreign exchange businesses generally, and not a research report that reflects the views of disinterested research analysts. Notwithstanding the foregoing, this podcast should not be construed as an offer or the solicitation of an offer to sell or to buy or subscribe for any particular product or services, including, without limitation, any commodities, securities, or other financial instruments. We are not soliciting any specific action based on this podcast. It is for the general information of our clients. It does not constitute a recommendation or a suggestion that any investment or strategy referenced herein may be suitable for you. It does not take into account the particular investment objectives, financial conditions, or needs of individual clients. Nothing in this podcast constitutes investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, or a representation that any investment or strategy is suitable or appropriate to your unique circumstances, or otherwise constitutes an opinion or a recommendation to you. BMO is not providing advice regarding the value or advisability of trading in commodity interests, including futures contracts and commodity options, or any other activity which would cause BMO or any of its affiliates to be considered a commodity trading advisor under the U.S. Commodity Exchange Act. BMO is not undertaking to act as a swap advisor to you or in your best interests in you, to the extent applicable, will rely solely on advice from your qualified independent representative in making hedging or trading decisions. This podcast is not to be relied upon in substitution for the exercise of independent judgment. You should conduct your own independent analysis of the matters referred to herein, together with your qualified independent representative, if applicable. BMO assumes no responsibility for verification of the information in this podcast. No representation or warranty is made as to the accuracy or completeness of such information, and BMO accepts no liability whatsoever for any loss arising from any use of or reliance on this podcast. BMO assumes no obligation to correct or update this podcast. This podcast does not contain all information that may be required to evaluate any transaction or matter, and information may be available to BMO and or its affiliates that is not reflected herein. BMO and its affiliates may have positions, long or short, and affect transactions or make markets in securities mentioned herein, or provide advice or loans to, or participate in the underwriting or restructuring of the obligations of issuers and companies mentioned herein. Moreover, BMO's trading desks may have acted on the basis of the information in this podcast. For further information, please go to bmocm.com slash macrohorizons slash legal.